Welcome to the Conceive Baby Podcast. My name's Tasha Jennings, fertility naturopath and nutritionist. In each episode, I share with you my best fertility tips and introduce you to world-leading fertility experts to help you improve your fertility well-being to create your healthy pregnancy. Welcome to the Conceive Baby Podcast. I'm fertility naturopath and nutritionist Tasha Jennings. And in today's interview, I have the pleasure of speaking with a guest whose work delves into the science of sperm. Dr. Jess Dunleavy is a research fellow at the Male Infertility and Germ Cell Biology Lab within the School of Biosciences at the University of Melbourne. And her research focuses on understanding the mechanisms that drive sperm production with relevance to male infertility, contraceptive development, and the implications on health more broadly. Recognised with multiple international and national awards, including accolades from the Society of Reproductive Biology and the Male Contraceptive Initiative, Jess's work exemplifies excellence in male reproductive biology. She also serves as an associate editor for esteemed journals like Molecular Human Reproduction and Reproduction Fertility and Development. And I myself was fortunate to see Jess speak at a recent conference and present her research. And I so loved her presentation and her understanding of the science behind sperm development and how we can influence this, that I wanted to share her insights with you and she has kindly agreed. So today, Dr. Jess Dunleavy joins me to shed light on the science of sperm production, male infertility, and the significance of her fascinating research in improving male fertility and pregnancy outcomes. So welcome, Jess. Thanks, Tasha. That was a very nice introduction. <laughs> oh, it really is. And you know, I, I'm not saying I really enjoyed your presentation. Uh, I think what you're just providing so much more understanding of reproductive biology and particularly that male factor, which I think there is such a predominant focus on the females, uh, which is really difficult for females, a burden to carry as well. So I love that your research really sheds light on the importance of that male factor in creating new human beings. So tell us a little bit of like an overview of your research and, and how you, you got into this field. Yeah, sure. So um, I guess as you like really nicely introduced, I study the mechanisms that drive sperm production, or I like to think of it as sort of the most amazing extreme makeover ever. And that's how we go from a spermatogonial stem cell, which is sort of like, a, it's a really important cell, but it looks pretty nondescript, kind of like a blob, and how it gets transformed into this motorized and machine that can um, survive outside the body and traverse the female reproductive tract and actually find and fertilize an egg mm. um, and the process is not only extreme um, in terms of the transformation but also the scale so men produce about a thousand to one and a half thousand sperm per heartbeat so there's a huge amount going on and I study um, a lot of different things along that process uh, a recurring theme is really studying how the cellular architecture of um, sperm is built 
Um, so we study what we call the cellular cellular skeleton or cytoskeleton and um, how this drives the division of cells and also the remodeling of the sperm precursors to get that compact and hydrodynamic head shape and also build the sperm tail um and so how did I get into this <laughs> <laughs> yes it's an interesting area of research well, well I, it's usually uh, not something you, you you know when you're with three years old it's like I, you know I want to be a, a sperm biology researcher <laughs> it's definitely not something being a sperm expert it's definitely not something you grow up dreaming about or even knowing about as an yeah. option um, so I grew up in New Zealand in a winemaking family and yeah. dad would have much preferred me to go into looking at how you make wine as opposed to how you <laughs> make sperm. But I always really loved reproductive and developmental biology. So uh, I had the privilege of seeing my mum go through pregnancies when I was seven and 10. And I just found the whole process so um, fascinating and really magical. And when I went off to uni um, at Otago University in New Zealand, I did a Bachelor of Science and really there was a strong focus in my course on reproductive biology and I just found that so fascinating. Um, And so I had the privilege when I was there of working with um, Professor Neil Gemmell, who's, uh, he does a little bit of reproductive biology um, things. At the time they were doing a project on advancing paternal age Mm -hmm. using zebrafish. So um, I sort of had my eyes open to how little is known about sperm production and male infertility you know it's very much been treated as a woman's problem Uh, and this really needs to change if um we're gonna you know treat fertility better so the moment I think you sort of touched on a little bit um our only way to treat male infertility is really to bypass the problem altogether with IVF Mm. this places the bulk of the treatment burden on the female um and this is because we don't really understand the causes of male infertility. Um, so we can't really treat it if we don't understand the causes at the moment. So that's sort of my research focuses on understanding um, the fundamental mechanism, how sperm are produced and how things might go wrong. And then ultimately, hopefully, how we might change things that that's sort of further down the track. Yeah. I love that journey of how you got involved in this field. <laughs> um, and I, I, I find it fascinating that the fact that, you know, two different cells from two different human beings to, can come together to to create a new life, to start a new heart beating. It's phenomenal. And even the process you were describing from that, you know, nondescript cell to then this motorized, you know, that's yeah. going to carry the DNA that's going to, you know, potentially become a new human being and the prolific volume in which this is happening with inside the body without any really acknowledgement on our part at all <laughs> it's just happening so I mean obviously sperm production is a critical aspect of, of male fertility um, so I guess could you explain the the mechanisms that you're investigating and and how it relates to male infertility yeah, sure. So um, for about 70% of men diagnosed with male factor infertility, we can clearly see that they have um, some form of sperm production or sperm function defect. So that might be low sperm numbers, abnormal sperm morphology, um, or low sperm motility. Normally, it's a combination of all three. And while we can clearly see these defects, for the vast majority of cases, we still don't really understand what's causing them. So a precise mm. diagnosis of the underlying cause can't be given. And as I touched on before, that means that um, 
we, we can't really provide an accurate prognosis of how those um, uh, how or how well an individual man's sperm will perform, for example, in an IVF setting. Um, and also we can't really treat the underlying cause. We just have to bypass it altogether mm-hmm. with IVF. So a large part of my research really focuses on identifying genes that are essential for sperm production and sperm function and understanding how mutations in them um, might cause male infertility. So it's estimated that about half of um, male factor infertility has a genetic basis, but we're only very much at the beginning of identifying what these genetic causes are. Mm. So I'm really lucky at Melbourne Uni to work with Professor Moira O'Brien. She's sort of a leader in the sperm field um, and helped establish a um, international consortium where we've brought brought together geneticists, clinicians and other researchers um, to really tackle this problem. So I've got some nodes all around the world and um, where our clinical collaborators will sequence the um, DNA of male and fertile patients so we can try and identify the mutations causing their infertility. And so um, in, in Melbourne, we model these mutations to investigate are these mutations ones that are actually causing the male infertility yeah. um, so we do that in mice and also um, Dr. Brendan Houston who I work with does this with fruit flies um, oh. so it's two different cool can, can I ask why fruit flies <laughs> I've um, heard it fast. so they are a little bit different to yeah. a better model but when you want to screen multiple genes at once they're um, sort of a really good model for doing it quickly and you can kind of get the low-hanging fruit yeah as it were but um but you might miss some because there are differences in terms of what's required um but yeah so we're hoping that eventually we'll get to a point where we have a really well characterized gene panel of mutations that cause male infertility so that when a man comes into the clinic we can screen for these and give a much better um you know a precise diagnosis and then a much better idea of how to treat this infertility um, and also any potential other impacts these mutations might be having and hopefully also lay the foundation for better treatments in the future. So at the moment with um, understanding sperm production, we're so far behind other processes and particularly on the female side of things because it's for so long it's been ignored. Mm. Um, you know, female uh, Fertility has been treated as a female issue. Yeah. Um, so we... We still really need to lay that groundwork of understanding the fundamental mechanisms of how sperm are produced and how they function so that eventually we'll be able to actually um, have male-focused treatments um, for these issues, yeah. I love even the fact that this this research is obviously global. This is, you know, such a huge volume of, of research too, which is exciting, I think, for females struggling with fertility who are, unfortunately, at the moment, mostly shouldering the burden um, themselves. I think it's still perceived that, you know, if I can get you pregnant, then then that's my job done. But, you know, we sperm is so much more involved in reproduction than, than just that, you know, miscarriage, the progression of that healthy pregnancy, the lifelong health of the future baby. And I love that your research is really helping to identify some of these issues. So I guess for couples who are struggling um, with infertility, what advice or insights can you offer to, to, I guess, help them better understand the male side of this equation when it comes to their fertility issues? Yeah, so I guess remembering that 
the first thing to remember is that male factors do contribute to about 50%. So I think it's 40% is typically male factor only, and then they contribute to um, combined causes as well. Um, and so remembering, you know, it's not just the female partner that needs to be focused on, also mm. think about um, the male's health and um, and those aspects. And, and if you're at the beginning of your journey, you know, getting tested for a man is much easier than for a woman. So yeah. sometimes it's worth just doing that early on because um, it can give a bit of peace of mind or it can help, you know, identify something that needs to be addressed. Um, and if you find that your sperm quality isn't amazing, which I mean, as humans, we're actually really bad at making sperm compared to other species. <laughs> it's partly because we're monogamous and we tend to, um, there's less selection pressure. You know, some other species the female will mate with multiple males. So the sperm's literally competing. <laughs> whereas we don't put our men through that. <laughs> so uh, our baseline of fertility is lower to begin with so don't be yeah. disappointed if you do see your sperm quality isn't amazing but what's important to know is you have this amazing opportunity to actually improve it because men are producing sperm throughout their lifespan mm. it takes about three months to make a sperm um because it's you know this extreme transformation mm. so you can implement lifestyle changes and see improvements um, but remember it does take probably about three months to see them fully kick in. Um, yeah. And I think also highlighting with male factor infertility, remembering that, you know, often it is genetic in origin. So we think about half. Um, so sometimes the best thing is just to get some medical help and not to be afraid mm. of doing that. Um, and even if it is genetic in origin, making lifestyle changes also just helps, you know, overall increase that baseline of fertility. But yeah definitely sometimes just going for some medical help is the best thing getting help up front and the 90 days I loved you mentioned that I, I talk about the 90 days all the time because I you know there is this window of opportunity and I think I'd almost go so far as a responsibility that we have we, we have this opportunity to optimize the DNA we're passing on to our future children and I think that's such a, as I said, I, I almost call it a responsibility that we have to to do that for our for our children. I think it's often unknown. We know we need to nourish a pregnancy. Once we're pregnant, we're going to be healthy. We're going to do everything right. But it's really in those 90 days prior to conceiving that you can almost have more influence. I mean, once that DNA is sort of set, we can nourish it, but you have this opportunity to, to I guess, improve the sperm health, obviously egg quality as well, but but sperm health, I think, is something that's often forgotten. The woman will go, okay, I'm going to get healthy, but he's still sort of smoking, drinking, and thinking he's totally fine. People don't realise, and it's so interesting, like I'm in my early 30s and so many of my friends at the moment um, will be like, oh, does the man also need to make lifestyle changes? I'm like, yes. And and people also just think about in terms of fertility, but actually, you know, there's such good data to show that um, men's preconception health uh, has impacts for pregnancy, miscarriage risk, um, and also lifelong um, health outcomes for the children. So you really want to set up um, the pregnancy for success. And, um, you know, for men, they they have a smaller part to play, I guess, because they don't have to do go through the whole pregnancy, but um, they still can contribute in this way. And also if they make healthy lifestyle factors, it also makes it easier for their partner. 
um, totally. so going through it together is really important. Yeah, and I think realizing that I think there is the lack of awareness. I think you know a lot of the men that I speak to, as soon as they were made aware, like oh, I didn't realize what I was doing is having implications. And I know I interviewed Professor Adam Watkins, um, whose research looks at the long term, you know, effects of, of sperm health, which I think is just such a valuable thing. So I think if men can really, if, you know, one thing you can take away from this discussion is that how important that 90 days is prior to conceiving during this you know amazing I love what you say extreme makeover yeah, yeah I grew up on you know 90s extreme makeover shows and <laughs> there's no better extreme makeover than, than sperm I love it that's that's a really I'm gonna love that analogy I'm gonna use that <laughs> because it is and it's you have the opportunity to influence that extreme makeover and how amazing it's gonna be at that other at the other end so Obviously, a lot of our listeners are interested in what they can do, um, you know, some natural things they can do to improve their fertility. From So from your research, um, I guess, are there lifestyle factors, habits that men can adopt to enhance their, their sperm production and, and overall fertility? Yeah, for sure. So it's like really similar to um, female preconception health. Mm. Um, and I guess the really the biggest thing to know is that men should also be taking as much care as the females um, and considering their preconception health if not more so sperm are pretty sensitive um, little cells Mm. Um, and and as we said that's important not only for fertility but pregnancy and lifelong health of the children so the biggest one is smoking smoking Mm. is so so bad for sperm um Sperm are especially sensitive to the negative impacts of smoking. So it decreases um, number, morphology, and motility. Um, but also it increases um, DNA damage in sperm, which is what's sort of the most concerning thing. Um, and when we think about the biology of the sperm, so to make sperm light and fast and hydrodynamic, um, they become really compact and they sort of lose all their cellular machinery, except for what they need to get to where they're going and so they lose the ability to repair dna damage after they've been exposed to um toxicants such as smoking um so so you have to be so yeah reducing smoking is one of the Mm -hmm. the big ones cutting it out um and and also similar to that vaping alcohol so binge drinking you know a couple glass of wine is fine but yeah, you don't want to be partying like you're... I always say that to my preconception person. So I'm like, you can have maybe three to five, but you can't save them all up for Friday night. You can have yeah, spread yeah. over spreading week. it out. And you I think... spread them out. Yeah, it's amazing now, like with um, things like the non-alcohol beers and stuff mm. like that. Like these days, it's a lot easier to um, cut out sort of that incidental drinking where you're drinking way more than you maybe realise. Mm. Um, illicit drugs will avoid all of that. Um mm. And just same as females, you want to eat a well-balanced diet, lots of veggies, lean meats, avoiding fried foods and sugars, getting enough sleep and exercise. And the other really important thing to note is thinking about your environment. So, um, and your exposure to environmental endocrine disruptors. So every day we're exposed to lots of different chemicals that can interfere with the normal functioning of our endocrine system, which is, you know, our hormonal system. Um, and having the right balance of hormones is especially important for our fertility, mm. not just for females, but also for males. So many of these endocrine disruptors act as what we call synthetic estrogens. And so men 
do produce some estrogens and they need some estrogens for their normal um, functions. But for men, having really high levels of estrogens can be really um, negatively um, impactful for their fertility and also other health things that can lead to increased risk of prostate cancer. So it's just good to consider um, even when you're not trying to conceive. Um, so endocrine disruptors, things that you can remove from your day-to-day -day life, like plastics, particularly in terms of food containers, never microwave food in a plastic container. Oh, yes. Like yeah, yeah. glass. Yes, let's um, shut that out. <laughs> that's a big one. Um, and yeah. so, yeah, plastics and these things called phthalates, which are found in many plastics, but also in many fragrances. So mm. there are some fragrance-free, some fragrances that are phthalate-free. Um, I know my perfume, I checked it when I bought it. <laughs> oh, me too. Yeah, I, um, I always check for those things. Yeah. But but if you're unsure, um, just buy fragrance-free products. That's a really easy one. Um, so for your cleaning products and things around the home. And then the other thing um, is in the garden, thinking about pesticides, herbicides, and insecticides. So these are all really, really bad for sperm. Um, and so you just want to be thinking about what kinds of things you're using in your garden and when you are using them, if you have to, wearing um, PPE, so gloves and, and maybe a mask and that kind of thing. I'm always at my husband about that kind of stuff. <laughs> um, and then the other thing to think about with sperm is heat. So mm. there's a really good reason why um, men's precious cargo is outside the body, which is kind of a pretty risky place to put, to put it. But um, Somatogenesis actually occurs at a few degrees lower than our core body temperature. So you don't want to be sitting in the spa every night when you're trying to have a baby. Yeah. Um, but also, I guess that because it's more about longer exposures to heat. So trying to make sure that you're well protected against um, diseases that cause infections that cause fever. So make sure you're vaccinated for the flu and COVID. So if you do get them, you're less likely to get a really bad fever. Um, because that can really impact sperm for that cycle. Um, so those are sort of the key things, really. I think that's important awareness to have. And I did another podcast interview about the impact of COVID on male fertility, because yeah. I think that was, again, an unknown factor and people going into IVF cycles with, you know, just having had COVID. And unfortunately, we see it in, in the sperm health. Um, so the good news is, I guess, over those 90 days, we can see a great deal of improvement. If you wait another 90 days, we're a whole new batch of sperm coming through. Unlike eggs, you know, we have had them our entire life. We can certainly make some improvements in those 90 days, but sperm are starting fresh. So, you, you know, have we this can... amazing opportunity. And, yes. uh, and yeah, some people think, you know, there's some people in the sperm world who are like, oh, we should use sperm as a litmus test for health more broadly. <laughs> Because well, it's a really good um, indicator of what's been going on and your lifestyle and that kind of thing. Yeah, and it is something that we can easily test. So, yeah, if there's any couples out there who are trying and the male hasn't been tested yet, this is not just in an IVF setting. You know, if you're struggling to conceive, have a semen analysis, it's something really simple and easy to do. And there are simple measures you can take. I know I've had patients who've been gardeners and first thing I've said exactly as you said, put on some gloves, wear a mask. It became a lot easier in COVID. Like we've got a mask anyway, wear it. <laughs> um, so because those things kill life and that's, you know, we're trying to create life and we don't want those toxins around. And I, I love the way you said that. I think it really helps to understand the importance of it and that the, 
the machinery. You made me think of a race car. Basically, yeah. my, my husband's into cars and he's like, oh, they're so, they, they lighten everything. Like they have like almost nothing, those race cars, because they, they let everything go for speed. Yeah. And obviously the, the um you know, sperm cell is kind of like this race car. They're- yeah. And so they become very sensitive. And then yeah. the egg can sort of repair some damage, yeah. but also that also depends on the age of the egg. So, um, you know, it's better if we can prevent the egg having to do any extra work to begin with. <laughs> Definitely. Well, a lot of the couples I work with um, are often older and, and you know, the egg quality is, is may not as be as good as it, as it was. And I say, yeah, no, no pressure to the partner, but we need super swimmers. We need Olympic athletes here because yes, the, the egg has this amazing ability. And I, I like to say as women, we like to get our men and we fix them up a bit. And we, we kind of do that at a biological level. We, we get the sperm and we fix any issues and we go on to create a pregnancy, but as we get older, probably as in life as well, we, we can't be bothered with any of that. You know, we just got don't have problems to fix. Exactly. Got our own problems to deal with. We can't bring on problems there. So we need, you know, as perfect sperm as possible. And given that the male is producing a whole new batch every 90 days, there is such a window of opportunity if you are that little bit older for the male to take on a big part of this, this journey with you and to help it really improve um, your outcomes. Yeah, for sure. So, I mean, you, Lucy mentioned there that we should use it as a litmus test for, for health in general. And I know you're, you're almost, you're looking at that a little bit to see the implications of, I guess, what you're finding out in regards to sperm health and, and the implications that it has for health in general. Can you explain that a little bit? Yeah. So we often think of um, male infertility as a canary in the coal mine mm. for health more broadly, um, or as I said before, a litmus test. So um, men as a cohort who are infertile have an increased risk of other comorbidities, um, so other health problems, and also an increased risk of death compared to their fertile counterparts. It's not a huge, I wouldn't freak out, it's not a huge increase, mm. um, but it is there. And, and from a lifestyle perspective, it does make sense. So if you think about lifestyle factors that impact male infertility um, or male fertility can also impact our health more broadly. Yeah. Um, but there's also increasing um, evidence that there's a genetic aspect at play. So there's an increased risk of mortality for um well, the increased risk of mortality, for example, increases with increasing severity of semen parameters. So men who have absolutely no sperm in their ejaculate, we call this azoospermia, and this is often genetic in origin, mm. they have the highest increased risk of death. So there's definitely a genetic link at play. And this is because many of the genes that are used in sperm production are also used uh, throughout our body. So the testis actually, so you know, every cell has its um our whole genome sitting there sort of in the nucleus, almost like a little book, um, mm-hmm. recipe book. And not every cell has to use every recipe, but the testis uses more of these recipes or these genes than any other tissue in the body. And so um often if we uh, see a defect in sperm production, or there might be other problems elsewhere in the body. Um, but sperm production is sort of the first process to fall over or the most obvious one to fail. Um, So a really good example is that many of the genes required for developing the sperm tail um, that help 
that sort of form that structure and also help with the motility of the sperm tail also um, play roles in our respiratory tract. So with these finger-like projections down our um, trachea that help beat all the mucus out. Yeah. Uh, and the same genes are involved in sperm tail motility, also involved in this motility. Interesting. Um, and also in the brain for helping move our fluid, we see they're similar um, cells they're using similar genes so often if you have defects in sperm motility you might also have defects in some of these cells um, but we don't pick them up as easily because um, we're not looking at them as closely so with uh, an individual man um, if we can better understand his causes of infertility we can of course better understand any potential additional health issues he may face mm -hmm. um, and also any potential health implications for any future children so I think it's really important um, to really precisely diagnose what's causing male fertility. We're not there yet. We don't have, you know, we haven't identified all the genes required, but hopefully in the future we will be. Um, and I would say for future children not to stress too much because most causes of male infertility are recessive. So that means you only need one mutation. Uh, I mean, you need a mutation from both uh, mother and father, sorry. So you need yeah. two, two mutations, not yeah. one. Um, and so you'd need both partners to have the mutation for the child to be affected. Um, yeah. But I think it's still important for us to have a better understanding because um, without it, we're doing a disservice to our patients um, and it's resulting in that, that double burden. So we have the burden on the female partner having to undergo treatment because we can't treat the male infertility, but also the burden on the male partner because we can't diagnose this infertility, what's causing it and what potential health issues, additional health issues he may face. Yeah, it's exciting to be able to uncover these things, which is so important yeah. for for us as you know human beings, but also for the next generation as well, and for creating healthy pregnancies and healthy babies, which is obviously what this this show is all about. <laughs> um, are there any, I guess, myths um, or common misconceptions about sperm and male fertility that you've debunked during your research? Or yeah, um, the age doesn't matter. Ah, so, big one. Um, yeah, so men do have this amazing ability to produce sperm throughout their lifespan. Yeah. Um, you know, there's reports of men uh, fathering children into their 90s. Mm. Uh, Al Pacino, I think, he's 83 and his partner is currently pregnant. Amazing. Um, and for years there was sort of conflicting evidence about whether male age um, has an impact. In fact, in non-human species, was sort of theorized that advanced male age was better because um, those males have proven to be, you know, have superior genetic quality. They can actually survive to advanced male age. Whereas humans, you know, we have thankfully have healthcare. So yeah, <laughs> we can all survive. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. I, that's probably less of a, plays less yeah. of a role. Um, but yeah, quite early in my career, I was lucky enough to work with some fantastic researchers at Otago University. So Professor Neil Gemmell and, Dr. Cherie Johnson, and we were focused on compiling all the existing um, evidence on male age in humans, um, and we controlled for all the various confounders, including, you know, maternal age and lifestyle and those sorts of things, um, and we found that uh, semen quality does decline with age across mm. numerous studies, a huge amount of data, um, so it's particularly motility, morphology, and and the DNA quality of the sperm. Um, and we also confirmed these findings in zebrafish. So I use zebrafish as a model, <laughs> um, 
which was a fun fun year. Any reason for the zebrafish again? Uh, is it they're similar or? Yeah, they're a good aging model. So we did. Okay. I did a little pilot study, and then it continued for a longitudinal study for three years, right. and it meant that we could control because zebrafish are external fertilizers. Mm. So um, it meant we could control the specific quantities of sperm and eggs, um, mix them together, and it's almost like doing IVF, but it's still in the natural parameters of yeah. how zebrafish would um, fertilize, and we could also track fertilization success and watch because uh the zebrafish embryo is translucent mm. and straight away see if things are fertilized normally how the um the eggs are developing and then the hatching success and how that. helpful for research yes yeah. so um they're really interested because they do a lot of non-human research they're really interested in um sort of whether male age also has an impact um in uh, other species aside from humans so that was um, really interesting. And that sort of started my sperm journey, actually. Um, yeah. But yeah, it's now fairly well accepted that pregnancy, time to pregnancy and pregnancy success rates are impacted by male age. Yeah. Um, and when you do see those older part, those older males um, who are getting their partners pregnant, it's really important to take note of the female partner's age. So often yeah. they will be... Um, younger and it's that whole thing that we're talking about of the female you can help repair some of that damage yeah um, yeah and the other thing with male age is um, as men age the mutational load of the sperm increases so we see an increased risk of um, what we call dominant genetic disorder so where you only need one mutation to okay and that's just because um so for females we're born with all our eggs and they only have to go through a few divisions to produce that egg and then it sits there quiescent waiting for the right time yeah whereas with sperm men are producing you know sperm throughout their lifespan and those stem cells that are producing the sperm are constantly dividing and every time they're dividing they're copying out that genetic material that dna and every time they copy it out, it's a chance for an error to be introduced or mm. And so um, as men get older, they get accumulate, I guess, more errors or mutations in their stem cells that go on to produce the sperm. So men are sort of, uh, they're responsible would <laughs> for most new mutations in our population. And that can be a good thing sometimes. That's how we evolve evolve yeah yeah a lot of the time these mutations will have no impact um mm. but yeah, sometimes they can um lead to uh disorders for the offspring so that's something else to note it's a s- small but significant increased risk in a few things like um apert syndrome and achondroplasia which is dwarfism um, and there's also an increased risk with autism um, yeah yeah so age does matter. Yeah. So yeah. age does matter. Yeah. Yeah. And then I guess it's when we go back to all those things you can do to help to optimize yeah. that sperm development, which is really such a responsibility that we have to to help improve that sperm health during those 90 days and be aware that yes, age makes a difference. And yes, if you're older man, then probably the younger female and, and vice versa. I often say, you know, yeah. if you've got a toy boy at 44, then you're probably going to have better It probably chance. helps. Yes, for sure. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
I mean, some of the newer technologies, I know there's a lot, and I spoke recently in another podcast about, I guess, some of the technologies we're using um, for IVF, but are there any emerging technologies and advancements in the field that you're in, um, in the treatment of male infertility that you're finding particularly promising or exciting at the moment? There's a few. I mean, nothing quite. Oh, actually, in the treatment space, a little bit. Um, mm. I guess the biggest one is uh, the whole exome sequencing to help yeah. diagnose and really better understand male infertility, as it's really transforming um, our understanding of the causes of male infertility and also just how you produce sperm. So that's going to lay a great foundation for um, future diagnosis and development of treatments. Um, a really cool one is our collaborator, um, Reza Nosrati at Monash University. One of his um, team members accidentally discovered that um, uh, high-frequency ultrasound boosts sperm motility. Uh, so this is a very happy accident. She was using it for something else. So they're um, an engineering team and they uh, helped develop a lot of cool devices for studying and sperm and for IVF and that kind of thing. And um, I'm not sure what she was using it but for, but she noticed the sperm was swimming faster. Interesting. And so they recently published on this and now we're looking at whether, um, so there's an honor student in our lab this year who's trying to look at it in mice and see if there's any impacts for the offspring. But, you know, ultrasound is a fairly safe and non-invasive um, mm. tool. So it could be quite useful in the clinic in future for helping um, slower sperm get to, where they need to go and also help with, you know, yeah, an IVF and that kind of thing. Wow. Um, what an interesting finding by accident. I know, yeah. <laughs> and they just were not expecting it at all. Yeah. Um, but it looks pretty promising. And I think they didn't see any increase in DNA fragmentation or anything like that. So really promising, but very early days. Um, yeah. And then, I mean, in the IVF space, there's always constant improvements happening all the time so mm. I'm sure you've probably covered it about how my Melbourne IVF have recently shown adding antioxidants into their culture media is improving um success rates with ICSI which is you know what we use to treat really severe um male factor infertility mm. um, so I think they saw a 10 percent increase in fertilization rates which is really amazing it's quite significant and it's something so simple as antioxidants as well you yeah. know if we can do that to our diet as well you know and have them yeah obviously they're proving that they make a difference because i know when you know you have high levels in yourself and through your diet they're found in the seminal fluid that's what they they're there to protect so if we can do that in the in the lab as well through ivf obviously they're, they're seeing the improvements yeah literally yeah so that's very cool but um mm. yeah we're still there's still so much work to be done in this space and a long way to go um but yeah there's lots of exciting things happening all around the world and there's also some cool things happening with contraceptives although that's not really this focus but <laughs> probably yeah, not for this audience but I do yeah, I do um, find that very yeah. exciting that we are actually leveling the playing field in some ways in that respect as well I think from a fertility and a contraceptive perspective just for reproduction in general at our at our choices going forward it's it's so great that we are recognizing the role of both parties in yeah. that reproductive process yes yeah for sure 
So I guess I've I've loved our discussion today. Uh, so thank you so much for sharing all your insights um, with us. I know there'll be a lot of takeaways that people have got from this. So what are some key takeaways, I guess, that and some I guess actionable advice that um, you'd like our listeners to to gain from your research, uh, especially for those who who are navigating those male factor fertility challenges. Yeah, so I think the key takeaway is that sperm do matter. Mm. Um, And as I've touched on, men need to be thinking about their health just as much as the female partner. Um, So, you know, go on this journey of together in terms of thinking about your preconception health, Um, not only in terms of the fertility, but for the uh, health of the pregnancy and um, for lifelong health health of your children. and what's really important, I think we've touched on this a lot today, is men are producing sperm all the time. So they do have this amazing opportunity to um, improve their sperm quality through lifestyle changes. Um, in saying that, though, I would say don't be too hard on yourselves. Try and optimize everything. You know, you can yes. do anything and everything. And um, it might not be the key because male factor infertility is often genetic in origin. So you may just need some medical help like obviously making lifestyle changes is great regardless but Mm. I wouldn't ruin your life over it you know fertility can be a really long journey um so you still want to enjoy life and look after your well-being and happiness as well and and it can be really hard not to compare yourself to your friends and family but I think remembering everyone has a different baseline of fertility um so some couples trying to get pregnant might it might happen without having to think too much about these things, which is frustrating, but, you know, for others, um, if your baseline's a bit lower, those lifestyle changes can have a bit more of an impact. Um, but, yeah, I would say get help sooner rather than later um, because sometimes you can try, you know, every every lifestyle change and it's not going to it's not going to be the difference if there's no sperm there to begin, you know, very few sperm there to begin with. Yeah. I've had patients come to me so, so stressed and almost eating nothing nearly because everything they touch or, you know, they want to go in and live in the Zen tent because they're so scared of touching any toxins and, all of these lifestyle changes can be, you know, navigated with support um, from someone like myself or a, you know, a fertility nutritionist who can help you navigate those without, yes, feeling like you're deprived of everything on this already stressful journey and understanding the why. I think that's a really good point that you pointed out that, okay, is this male factor? Why are we not getting pregnant? I always, uh, I get a lot of, I get sent a lot of unexplained infertility patients from my IVF clinics and I I think that that's not a diagnosis in itself we still need to dig deeper and find out the whys and I love that you're really digging deep into those genetics hopefully we'll have more whys um at some stage in the near future yeah and with unexplained infertility it's quite interesting because I was at a fertility conference a couple weeks ago and it's more of a clinical focus so in research you know when we are characterizing our mouse models of male infertility we will have some that have what we would consider normal semen parameters, but then once the sperm gets into the female reproductive tract, it can't undergo what we call hyperactivation, which is this special form of motility it needs to really um, drive through the fluid of the female reproductive tract because it's not just like going through water, it's a lot more viscous, Um, and to actually fertilize the egg. Um, And so these are kinds of things that don't actually get defects in those kind of processes, don't get picked up in a normal um, semen analysis. Mm. So... 
um, I think a lot of unexplained infertility is sort of more like undiagnosed infertility. Yes. Yeah. There was the argument that um, because it doesn't really change the treatment plan, how far do you test? Mm. Um, but that I think that is hard for couples not knowing. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I agree. And I think it's important to know that, yeah, as you said, it, it can be, you can have a normal semen analysis and they're the only parameters we can test. There are so much, so many other factors involved in, in this amazing process that starts the creation of a new life that just because you have a normal semen analysis doesn't give you the tick to go drinking, smoking, yeah. I'm all fine. Um, yeah. It's not a beauty contest. And that's why I say it's just because it looks good doesn't mean we don't know what that DNA is like underneath. As you said, we don't know how it's swimming once it reaches the female reproductive yeah. system, how, how, how it is able to, you know, hypercharge it and get to that sperm. So there's so many other facets involved that if you've had a normal semen analysis it doesn't give you the tick off preconception health <laughs> yeah you still need to be thinking about your preconception health you want to be thinking about your quality of your dna and that kind of thing yeah but yeah it's a it's a hard one yeah there's no it is it's no easy journey there is no easy journey but i think under having information is power and empowering couples in their fertility journey hopefully that's this this podcast is all about I think that is such a helpful step I think it can be so disempowering to as you said you go to an IVF clinic you're told you've got unexplained infertility there's nothing we can do except you you've got to pay thousands to do IVF I think having that level of understanding of what's happening and having that empowering yourself and what you can do what positive influence you can have over the creation of your family is is really exciting so yeah. thank you so much for joining us today I think I could talk for hours um about reproductive biology so I think we'll have to have you back on at some stage when you're further down your your reproductive um biology track um with some more information great thanks so much Tasha it's lovely to be here hopefully, yes hopefully it was all helpful <laughs> I'm sure it has been. I've loved our discussion and I'm sure our listeners have gotten loads out of it too. So hopefully you've enjoyed this episode. I'll put all the links to Jess's research below too, if you're a bit of a nerd like me and love all that stuff. And I'll put the links to the other podcasts I've referenced to as well in the show notes. Thanks for joining us. Bye for now. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Conceive Baby Podcast. To help you move forward on your journey to pregnancy, I've created your free fertility checklist for you. This checklist provides simple swaps you can make that can have a significant impact on your chances of conceiving and carrying your healthy baby. So be sure to head to conceivebaby.com.au forward slash checklist to download your free fertility checklist today.